Let me start with a question, if I can. How do you try to protect yourself in life? You typically try to protect yourself in life in areas where you have been hurt. It was a day like yesterday, which was an awful rainy day, just a horrendous day. But about 20 years ago, on a day like yesterday, uh, I was following two of my great friends, Trey and Chad, in a car. It was raining, just cats and dogs. And actually, now that I think about it, this is way longer than 20 years ago. I was in high school. Um, <laughs> I was doing the math in my head while I was, and I just wanted to, don't want to be disingenuous and start off an Easter sermon by lying. So. A, <laughs> A number of years ago, when I was in high school, I was following Trey and Chad. It was raining cats and dogs. They had stopped. They were in this big steel of a car. I'm not sure what it was, some type of Cadillac or something. I was behind them in a plastic Dodge Turismo, just this small little car. And I saw them stop. And I had time. I, I was paying attention. No cell phones, no Google Maps. I had plenty of time. I hit my brakes, hydroplaned. I turned the wheel one way, I turned the wheel another way, nothing changed. I had time to reach down and pull the emergency brake. Nothing happened, and I slammed into the back of them, and my hood popped up. And they, he had a starfish on his dashboard, it didn't even move. They didn't even know they were hit. They just kind of did that a little bit and turned around and had no idea. Ever since that moment when I was hurt in that car wreck, when it's raining, I leave so much space. I try to protect myself. Matter of fact, cars will cut in in front of me in the highway because I'm leaving so much space when it's raining. I uh, asked this girl out in ninth grade. She told me no. It took me years to get up the courage to ask a girl out again. I protected myself because I was hurt by that. I protected myself by saying, I'm not interested in dating anybody. I'll just play golf. I'll just play soccer in high school. I'm not interested. We protect ourselves in the areas where we feel like we have been hurt. Maybe you made that business deal with that guy and you said, I'm never going to do that again. I'm going to learn to protect myself. I was hurt by that deal. Maybe you shared something with your wife one time or you shared something in a journey group or you shared something in a community group. And it didn't go well, and you think, I'm never going to do that again. Most of our lives are spent trying to protect ourselves. It's why we buy insurance. It's why you wear makeup. It's why we cover up uh, our insecurities with humor. But how do you protect yourself from death? Well, most of us just don't want to think about it. Matter of fact, Ernest Becker is a famous anthropologist. He wrote a phenomenal book. Uh, he's a psychologist as well, and it's called The Denial of Death. And his basic thesis is this. We set up so many structures in this life to protect us from ever having to think about the fact that we're all going to die. Becker says it this way. He says, modern man is drinking and drugging himself out of awareness or he spends his time shopping, which is the same thing. As awareness calls for type of heroic dedication, this culture no longer provides for him. Society contrives to help him forget 
Or alternatively, he buries himself in psychology in the belief that his awareness all by itself will be the same kind of magical cure for his problems. In other words, we set up protective structures of entertainment, protective structures of industry. All of these things that we set up are all meant to keep us from having to think about the reality that we're all going to die. And the problem with the resurrection is it just feels so far away that typically we don't think about it in July or in August, do we? We think about it in the spring. But if I bought you tickets for Taylor Swift, and, and this is where you have to do the work in sermons. Say you don't like Taylor Swift, that's okay. Substitute whoever you like. But Taylor Swift is a hot item right now. I buy you t- tickets for Taylor Swift, and you say, that's great, that's so generous of you. And I say, yeah, it's for her fr- farewell tour. And you're like, I didn't know she was saying goodbye to the industry. And you say, well, they're for 2053. You would say, that, I mean, it's nice. I'm thankful for that, uh, but it's just so far away. I'll think about it later. I don't even know if I'll like her. I don't know if she'll be alive. I don't know if I'll be alive. But if, on the other hand, I say, I bought you tickets for Taylor Swift. That is awesome. When's the show? Tonight. What do you say? I've got to go get ready. I've got to get myself prepared. I've got to tune the, my heart to be able to sing all of her songs. What the resurrection is intended to do is to get you ready now to tear down all the protective structures that you have to make you vulnerable to let Jesus in, and then to reconstruct. The resurrection wants to reconstruct the way that you think about three things, your body, your mind, and your soul. First of all, the resurrection reconstructs our bodies. Luke 24. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened. They thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands, my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. See, We typically deal with death by thinking, many religions do this, the body must be escaped. So many world religions deal with death by saying, yeah, the body wasn't that good anyway. We need to escape it into some kind of nirvana. Or secularists would say this, the body's everything. Obey the body. Do whatever the body tells you to do. But here we see Christ coming on the scene, and the first thing he does to present himself, he gives the evidence of his body. Look at me, I'm alive. See my bones, see my hands, see my feet. Interestingly, he points out those two things. The two things that were pierced for our transgressions are the two parts of himself. He doesn't say, look how I can talk. Look how I can see you. No, he says, look at my hands. Because if you remember last week, uh, we talked about Isaiah 49 where he says, the children of Zion have forgotten you, God. And God responded, I have not forgotten you. Look at my hands. Your name is engraved on my hands. And look at my feet. These feet that walked with you all of these miles to bring the good news of the gospel. But you might object to this. 
you might say the resurrection could have never, ever happened. You might say, look, Andy, I can pull 10 doctors from Prisma and another 10 from AnMed and another 10 from St. Francis and another 10 from Spartanburg Regional, just making sure I'm covering all my hospital systems. <laughs> Have you ever seen anybody die and come back to life? Nope, never seen it. Have you ever seen, nurse, have you ever seen anybody die? How long have you been in the business? 50 years. Have you ever seen anybody die and come back to life? No, never, never actually seen it. See, the tempting thing to do is to believe that these men were just disillusioned, that this never actually happened. But that's what N.T. Wright calls chronological snobbery. To think that we would think differently about something now than they did. The interesting thing about this text is they didn't have a category for the resurrection any more than you and I did. They were just as surprised. They were just as startled. Look at what it says in verse 37. They were startled and frightened, and they immediately went to, this must be a spirit. And Jesus, knowing they were troubled and knowing they had doubts, then presented his body as the evidence. And he actually says to them in verse 38, why are you troubled? Fascinating, because so often Jesus had said to them, this temple would be destroyed and be rebuilt. I'm going to have to die. I'll be resurrected. He had given them everything they needed to know. You would think when they were huddled up for those three days that one of them would have maybe said, do you think we should at least go check? Uh, maybe he was right. I mean, could one of you just run down there quietly and see if anything's happened? What swayed them? When they had no category for a resurrection, just like we as modern men and women don't have any category for a resurrection, what swayed them? What swayed them was the evidence. Look at verse 41 while they were disbelieving and marveling. If you have doubts today about the resurrection, that's a good way to enter into this passage. Still disbelieving, still wondering, could this possibly be true? And at the same time, marveling. But here's what I wanna say in closing out this point. The resurrection reconstructs our bodies. It reconstructs our view of our bodies now. Sam Alberry. Uh, who wrote a great book called What God Has to Say About Our Bodies, writes, because we live in a created world, our bodies are a gift. But because we live in a fallen world, they might not be the gift we would have wanted. But if we have been created, then our body is not some arbitrary lump of matter. It means something. It's not peripheral to our understanding of who we are. For all the difficulties you might have with it, it is the body God wanted you to have. But the resurrection means, at the same time, that one day all of your cancer will be healed. One day your knees will work again. One day your eyes will be able to see like they used to be. It means that your body now is a temple and your body will be resurrected. And that's important, really important, for a couple of reasons. Number one, at minimum, it gives us a starting point theologically to deal with all the issues today. Issues of gender, issues of dysmorphia, issues of sexual preferences or eating disorders. The theological starting point to deal with all of those issues that culture is struggling with to define is the resurrection of the body and the impact of that. But it also has deeper meaning than that. Let me see if I can get through 
three sentences here. Uh, Chad Scruggs, pastor, covenant, Nashville, who lost his daughter, Haley, three weeks before his daughter was shot, preached a sermon called Death's Conqueror. Don't you think that the resurrection matters? What other hope would you possibly have on a day like today? What other hope are we possibly going to have in this world except the fact that God's going to wipe away every tear and make all things new again? The resurrection of the bodies is the Christian theology of hope that we have to rub into our very souls, our bodies, and our minds. Here's the second point. The resurrection reconstructs our minds. Look at verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. See, our minds are going to construct protective ideas to keep us from having to think about the impact of who God is. Another uh, objection to the resurrection is called hallucination theory. All of these uh, individuals that saw Jesus were just hallucinating somehow. They, uh, they saw something, an aberration of some type. You know, it couldn't possibly have happened. It must have been a, a mass hallucination. Needless to say, that's never happened in human history before. But also, when people say, Andy, can you prove the resurrection? Here's what they want. They want a laboratory test. But not all truth can be proven in a laboratory. Uh, sure, barometric pressure can, gravity can, uh, the travel of light can, but historical verification, historical truth claims are proven out a different way than laboratory claims. How are historical truth claims proven out? By witnesses. Matter of fact, when I die, you would have a hard time proving in a laboratory that I ever existed, right? You couldn't do it. But you'd have to go to historical verification claims. You'd have to go to interview my wife, interview my kids, see if they have stories that line up the same. And so when he says in Mark, look, if you have problems with this, go ask Mary Magdalene. Go ask Mary, the mother of James. Go ask Salome. Uh, it's what Peter says in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says he's appeared to at least 500 people. We don't have a shortage of evidence here. There are so many people that have seen the resurrection of Jesus and reason with me. Use your mind and reason with me. If it didn't happen, what is the plausible explanation for how this leader led a worldwide religion with a group of 12 Jewish guys that were fumbling around. And, and does the hallucination theory just keep on going in perpetuation forever? What, what would be the explanation, the plausible explanation for how presidents and poor people, how billionaires and disenfranchised, how black or white, how people across every culture and every country all say we believe our hearts have moved in such a way that we believe that this man, he existed and he's risen. This is a heady quote, but I like it. T.S. Eliot, I believe in you. The majority of mankind is lazy-minded, incurious, 
absorbed in vanities, tepid in emotion, and is therefore incapable of either much doubt or much faith. And when the ordinary man calls himself a skeptic or an unbeliever, that is ordinarily a simple pose, cloaking a disinclination to think about, think anything out to in the conclusion. Cloaking a disinclination. I just don't want to have to think through these realities of whether this could be true or not. So I'll just entertain myself with the vanities, be tempted in my emotion, and pull back from having to think it through. But here Jesus, in verse 44, it's beautiful. He says, look, everything that's been written about me, from the law of Moses to the prophets to the Psalms, all of this are, is fulfilled in me. That's the one sermon in all of human history I, I wish I could have listened to. Jesus going back and saying, remember how you long for a prophet? That prophet is me. You remember how you long for a king? That king is me. You remember how you long for a priest? That priest is me. And I'm here to fulfill the scriptures, to tell you that it's all been done. And you know what that means for Christian or non-Christian? You know what everybody needs right now is grace and more of it. And that's why Jesus said the law is now fulfilled so that you, by grace, can keep the commandments of God. Robert Kaplan says it this way, the, grace, the gospel of grace must not be turned into a bait-and-switch offer. It's not one of those airline super savers in which you read of a $59 fare to Orlando, only to find that when you try to buy a ticket, that the six seats per flight at that price are all taken and that the trip will now cost $199.95. He picked perfect numbers for that illustration, by the way. Jesus must not be read as having baited us with grace, only to clobber us in the end with the law. For as the death and resurrection of Christ were accomplished once and for all, so that grace that reigns by those mysteries reigns eternally, even in the thick of judgment. The gospel this morning means that you get to give yourself grace because it's already been given to you. It just has to be now worked into your heart because Christ died and Christ was resurrected so that you could enjoy his presence from grace. He wants to change your mind to think that you could work your way out of your sin. He wants to change your mind that makes you think that God doesn't love you and that Christ won't be good to you. He wants to change your mind that thinks if I follow God, he's going to do this bait and switch. He's going to give me initially grace and then he's going to make my life miserable. And because he reconstructs our minds, it means that in the new heavens and the new earth, he's going to heal everything that's wrong with them. All our mental illness, all our bipolar tendencies, all our depression, all our anxiety, all the ways that we don't think clearly about ourselves or others. Our bodies, our minds, and our souls. The resurrection reconstructs our souls. And he said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. 
so fascinating. What Jesus does initially is say, here's my body. And then he says, now I need to open your minds to all the scriptures, to everything that's been said, so that you can connect those dots. And then he says, and I need to forgive your sins. Now, why would he say that? That deals with your soul. Uh, because the sins that we do are carried out from our minds and from our bodies, but they live within, in our souls. And that's the part that he has to get to. That's why he says the final climax of what I've done in this resurrection is not just a promise to heal your bodies and heal your minds, but it's to forgive your very souls, to give you repentance and forgiveness of sins. But we don't think of our souls very much. That's why Jesus is constantly trying to get us to think about our souls. Mark 8, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? What does it mean if you have everything that your body would desire and everything that your mind would desire, but you forfeited your soul in the process? The Christian hope is that we're an eternal soul. In World War II, C.S. Lewis was asked, uh, by an interviewer, uh, what would you do if you looked up in the sky and you saw a German bomb raining down on you? And Lewis, uh, in his wittiness, said, I'd stick out my tongue, look up at it, and say, Pooh, you're only a bomb, but I'm an immortal soul. In other words, what are you going to possibly do to me? I'm made to live forever and ever. And the reason we can is because of verse 47, repentance, the forgiveness of sins proclaimed from all nations because Christ has suffered and Christ has risen from the dead. Let me quick, in closing here, uh, speak to three people. James, no, I'm just kidding. I just popped in my head. Uh, just three of you, come right up here. Let me speak to the atheist, the agnostic, and the believer. First of all, the atheist. Consider what Napoleon said when he said, I die before my time, and my body will be given back to the earth to become food of worms. Such a fate which soon awaits the great Napoleon. What an abyss between my deep wretchedness and Christ's eternal kingdom, proclaimed, loved, adored, and spreading throughout the world. For the atheist, I want you to see, uh, maybe you're struggling with faith. Maybe the, the moniker of atheist, uh, um, maybe you don't want that one. Maybe you just say, I'm not a Christian yet. I don't know what I am, Andy. I, I believe there might be some kind of God somewhere. I'm, I'm confused about Jesus. Here's what I want you to see. It's proclaimed to you that this God is unlike any other God that you'll ever find. Uh, Napoleon would go on to say, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is not a man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and the gods of other religions. The resemblance does not exist. Everything in him astonishes me. His spirit overawes me. His will confounds me. Between him and whoever else in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. He truly is a being by himself. Let me also teach you a word. It's a Welsh word. It's called hireth, or hireth, pronounced two different ways. H-I-R-A-E-T-H. It's one of those words that you can't translate. 
really well, like Senschuk in German. It's, it's hard to find a way to translate it. But you know what it means? It means an eternal longing for a lost home, something like that. The reason why, if you're an atheist, the reason why you don't feel comfortable in your own skin, the reason why you constantly think, is there something else, is because there is. Because your heart longs for home. And maybe even this morning, God is calling you home. He's calling you to believe that this king is unlike any other king. That's the proclamation. Now to the agnostic, uh, let me talk about the promise. Because you see it's proclaimed in verse 47. And then in verse 49, it says, I'm sending you the promise of my father. The promise of Christ. A lot of people are staying away from Christianity right now because of Christians. But let me put this before you, if you're in that category. Let's say you found the love of your life. She or he checks all the boxes that you had when you made that list of boxes when you were 13 years old. And they, it checks all of them. And she's got, she comes from a big family. She's got nine brothers and sisters. And you go to meet her family one day, and you see her family, and two of them you just admire. Three of them you're a little bit different about. And then four of them you're like, how are y'all from the same gene pool? These people are awful. I can't stand them. If that's the scenario, and some of you don't have to imagine that scenario. <laughs> but if that's the scenario, you would never let go of the love of your life because of their brothers and sisters. You would never do that. You would never say, I'm going to break the whole thing up. So fall in love with Christ first. Not all Christians you might like it. That's okay. We'll figure it out in the end, in the new heavens, in the new earth. But don't keep other people who annoy you or who you disagree with from following the king of kings. And then to believers, let me just say this. You're clothed with power from on high. Uh, there's a beautiful picture here that the power of the resurrection is given to us in the Holy Spirit, that the tomb is never less empty as it is right now, and the cross is never as more sufficient as it is right now, and the throne is never as occupied as it is right now, that Christ our Lord lives. And so you know what we do as a believers? We say with John Bennett, look there, the Christ our brother comes resplendent from the gallows tree, and what he brings in his hurt hands is life on life for you and me. Joy, joy, joy to the heart and all in this good dawn's dawning. At the end of the day, Christians, the point is not just to celebrate the resurrection today. It's tomorrow when the sun rises. You give yourself new morning mercies and you celebrate the resurrection again. And then the next day, when the sun rises, you give yourself new morning mercies and celebrate the resurrection again. And you do it all throughout the year until the Lord takes you home because Christ our Lord is in fact risen. And now, Father, as we sing, we pray that you would be worshiped we pray that you would be exalted. Uh, we pray that, as we say, in Christ alone, our hope is found. 
that you really would drive down to our minds, our bodies, and our souls the reality of the, rec- of the resurrection. Help us reconstruct how we think about all three of those. Help us in our minds to reason out. Though our sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Help us to remember the grace that you give us. Help us to believe in the trust by your Holy Spirit that you're coming soon. Until that time, we know, Christ, that you have conquered death, hell, and the grave forever. So we live as eternal creatures, longing to meet, to see you. And until that time, on this side of the Jordan, we worship you. We pray in your name. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we come on this day to worship you, to adore you. Father, we are so thankful that you love the world so much that you gave your Son to die in our place so that we could live. Father, you're not obligated to love us because of his sacrifice. You loved us first, and that's why you allowed this to happen. You allowed the wrath that we deserve to be poured out upon him. And uh, you allowed the propitiation of our sins to be poured out upon him so that we might know you, so that you could be our God and we could be your people. And Jesus, we love you. You were so obedient. You were faithful to the end. You, You took every blow upon your body and You didn't say a word. You were silent like a lamb before his shears is silent. Not because you didn't have anything to say, but because we have no defense. Not only are we sinners, but we continue to sin and dishonor you. You've created us a certain way for a certain life to live, and we constantly turn up our nose to you. We constantly think that there's a better way that we could live. We constantly are selfish and prideful, and you continually somehow forgive us again and again. Great is your grace, and magnificent is your mercy. And Holy Spirit, we are so thankful that you have come. It's good that you've come, as Christ told us, to testify with our hearts, to be a witness in our hearts when we doubt and when we struggle to believe if this is all true, you, Holy Spirit, testify with our spirits that we are your children. And you do that by convicting us sometimes, by encouraging us at other times, by reminding us of the truths of this life. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we worship you this morning. May you be pleased, we pray 
In Christ's name, amen. Uh, let me start by asking a question. Why does the resurrection matter at all? Now, here's why. Because we start to do all kinds of things in life to protect ourselves where we've been hurt. Think about this just for a second with me. Uh, when Yesterday was a day, it was raining like cats and dogs, right? And it was just that awful day. On a day like that, when I was in high school, I was following two buddies of mine, Trey and Chad. And I was following them to a gym. We were going to go play basketball together. He had this huge, like, big steel Cadillac, Trey did. And I had this plastic Dodge Turismo. They don't even make those anymore, for good reason. And I was following them. It was raining like crazy. I saw them stop. I was paying attention. There were no cell phones. I was paying perfect attention. I saw them stop. I hit my brakes. I hydroplaned. I, I had time to turn the wheel to the right and to the left. I had time to reach down and grab the emergency brake and pull it up. And nothing stopped it. Hydroplaned. It went right into the back of them. My hood popped up. They didn't even know I hit them. <laughs> they just, they said, we felt something, but we didn't know. My car crumpled up. I was kind of injured. Ever since that moment, ever since I got hurt in that car wreck, when it's raining, I protect myself by leaving a lot of room between the other person. Always. I can't get over. I can't like overcome that. The places where you have been hurt in life, you start to find ways to protect yourself. I asked a girl out in ninth grade and she rejected me. It took me years, years to have the courage to ask another girl out. I protected myself. I said, look, I just want to play golf and soccer and play drums, and I'm not really interested in girls. I was totally interested in girls. I was just self-protecting. You protect yourself in the places where you have been hurt. Uh, maybe you're here this morning and you thought, I'm never going to go back to church again. Those people were so mean. Uh, they're so private. They're such hypocrites. And you've been trying to avoid this place because it's self-protection. Maybe you did this business deal with this guy and it just went south. And you said, I'm never going to do a deal with him again. Maybe you confessed something or you shared with your wife and she just poured out guilt and you shame. And you said, well, I'm going to protect myself. I'm never going to say that again. I'm never going to go back to her and be vulnerable again. We protect ourselves in the places that were hurt. You constantly do it. But here's the question. How do you protect yourself from death? When I was 11, uh, it was my first experience with death. Katie, a friend of mine in the neighborhood, her dad got cancer and died. And 11 years old, I went to the funeral, my first funeral. It was an open casket. And I remember there standing, watching Tom lay there in his coffin. First experience ever with death. And I remember even at that point thinking, if he moves a muscle, I am going to freak out. You know, like resurrection is not normal. So I'm not sure what's going to happen. And then I got home that night. And my mom, who's a practical joker, said, could you go to the mailbox? We lived out in the country. Could you go to the mailbox and check the mail? And obediently, I did. And she said, she yelled from the front porch, by the way, there's something in our old station wagon. We had the station wagon with that big wood panel on the side. You remember those big, oh, you know, open the whole thing up. A seat that faces the rear way, which is only going to kill people. I don't know why they ever allowed that to happen. She said, would you open up that station wagon? There's something in there for you. I opened it up. You know what was in there? A mannequin 
She had a mannequin in her station wagon. She worked for a school. They had, for some reason, uh, they needed it for the school. And so I opened the station wagon, the light went on, and there's this person, you know, just stuck in the station wagon after I had just seen Tom Dixon. And I hear my parents laughing on the porch. And that's why I'm in counseling right now. It's, it's also why I'm scared of checking the mailbox and station wagons. We protect ourselves where we've been hurt or where we've been scared, and we don't really know what to do with death. Ernest Becker was an anthropologist and a psychologist, and he wrote a book called, in the 70s, it's actually still very relevant, called The, Deni the Denial of Death. In that book, this is what the psychologist argues. He argues that all of us create structures in this life to keep us from ever having to think about the reality that one day we'll all die. So we have entertainment structures and industry structures and all kinds of structures that we've constructed to keep that at bay. We buy insurance, we put on makeup, we exercise, we take our pills, we try to keep it all at bay. Here's what Becker says. Modern man is drinking and drugging himself out of awareness. Or he spends his time shopping, which is the same thing. As awareness calls for types of heroic dedication that this culture no longer provides for him, society contrives to help him forget. Or alternatively, he buries himself in psychology in the belief that awareness all by itself will be some kind of magical cure for his problems. See, what Becker argues is that we're constantly going to put this issue of death way down the road. And even when we come to the resurrection, and this Sunday in particular, we often think, what well, does the resurrection really matter? You know, it's like this. If I bought tickets, and let's say I, I come to you and I say, I bought you tickets to the Taylor Swift concert. And this is where you have to do the work of preaching. Say you don't like Taylor Swift. Substitute whatever you want. Uh, the Masters, the Boston Symphony, just wh whatever, you know, gets you going. I bought you tickets to Taylor Swift, which is a hot item right now. And, and you say, I'm so excited. When is it? And I said, it's her farewell tour. And you say, I didn't know she was uh, retiring. Well, I bought them ahead of time. It's for 2053. You would say, well, that, I mean, that's great. But there's a lot that could happen between now and then, Right. She might be dead, I might be dead, we, who knows? You, you would just put it out of your mind, you wouldn't think about it. But if I said, I bought you tickets to Taylor Swift, and it's tonight, what would you say? I've gotta go get ready. I've gotta start playing her music. I've gotta remember all the words. I've gotta find the dress to wear. I've, I've gotta find a suit to wear. I don't know what guys wear to Taylor Swift. I've gotta, <laughs> I've gotta get my heart ready. Well, what the resurrection is intended to do is to reconstruct, to tear down. Christianity doesn't want to destroy you. It wants to tear you down so it can reconstruct the way you think about three things, your body, your mind, and your soul. Now let's look at this text, Luke 24. Resurrection reconstructs our bodies. As they were talking about these things, this is after the resurrection, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why did doubts arise in your heart? See, my hands, my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see. 
For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. You see, what happens is we often think one of two things. Either the body has to be escaped, that's what most religions do. You know, the point is just to get to nirvana. You have to escape the body. The body's bad. It's, it's hindering you. Or the body is everything. That's what modern people do. Uh, we have to follow it. We have to obey it. We have to give in to it all the time. No, Christianity is different. Christianity says the body is incredibly valued and it will be resurrected. And so here comes Christ with the evidence of his body. That's the evidence that he gives to them. And look what he says. See my hands? See my feet? Why those two things? Why didn't he say, look at how I can talk? Look at how I can see you? Look at how I can do all these things? But remember last week in the benediction, I closed with Isaiah 49 that says, we have forgotten you. And God says, but I haven't forgotten you. Your name is engraved on the palms of my hands. I'll never forget you. Every time I look down, he shows his hands and his feet, the two places where he was pierced for our transgressions. Here are my hands, and here are the feet that brings the good news of Christ. Now, you might object to the resurrection. You might say, there's no way that this could happen. Maybe you'd say, look, Andy, I could go down to Prisma and grab 10 nurses and 20 doctors, and I could go to AnMed, and I could go to Spartanburg Regional, and I could go to St. Francis, just covering all my bases, don't want anybody offended. And I, I could go to all these hospital systems, I could grab 10 nurses, 20 doctors, and say, have you ever seen a dead person rise? And all of them are going to say, no, never seen it, can't happen. Why would I ever believe this? And these, these disciples were disillusioned. They had no idea what they were seeing. There's no way they could have believed this. Well, let me suggest this. That's what N.T. Wright calls chronological snobbery. And here's why. The people in this day and time had just as much of a problem with the resurrection and believing it as you do. Uh, let's not assume that they didn't have the same dilemmas. They did. That's why he comes to them, and he said, and they're startled, and they're frightened. Verse 37. And then it says, we thought we had seen a spirit. Like, there's got to be another alternate explanation for this. This must be uh, some kind of spirit aberration. There's no way that this could really happen. They think the same thing about it that you would think about it. Were you there? And that's why Jesus says, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise? You know, they were huddled up for three days after he had told them time and time again, I'm going to die and be resurrected. You could destroy this body, this temple, and it will rebuilt, be rebuilt. At three days, they were huddled in their little room, scared to death. You'd think one of them at some point would have said, maybe we should at least check. Maybe we should at least walk down there and see if like, what he's been telling us is true. But he didn't. They had a hard time believing it. That's why he says, look, here are my hands. Here are my feet. Give me a piece of fish. What swayed them? What swayed them? Evidence. The evidence of Jesus. The evidence of his body. The evidence of him being there at that moment. Because, as it says in verse 41, 
they were still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. And if you still struggle with the resurrection, believing it's true, that's at least a good place to start. Because the disciples, still, I'm still disbelieving. Could this all be true? But if it is, my heart springs with joy. My heart springs with marvel because it means our bodies matter. Sam Alberry says it this way. He says, because we live in a created world, our bodies are a gift. But because we live in a fallen world, they might not be the gift we would have wanted. But if we have been created, then our body is not some arbitrary lump of matter. It means something. It's not peripheral to our understanding of who we are. For all the difficulties you may have with it, it's the body God wanted you to have. And the resurrection means that one day, all your cancer will be gone. One day your knees will work again. One day you'll be able to see like you used to be able to see. One day you'll be able to sing finally on pitch for the first time in your life. Uh, one day you'll be made whole again. Your bodies matter. Now that's really important. Our bodies matter and will be resurrected. Let me give you two instances why this is so important. Number one, this is at least resurrected bodies is at least a theological starting point for all the cultural issues that we're facing around gender, around dis, uh, dis, uh, dysmorphia, uh, around sexual preferences, around eating disorders, around all of those things. The starting point theologically to understand that Christianity has answers for all of that. The starting point is in the resurrection. But the resurrection is also the hope that we have. Uh, you know, some of you, uh, some of you don't, uh, that the shooting in Nashville happened at a PCA church, and it was the, one of the victims was the pastor's daughter. Let me see if I can get through these three sentences. I know that church fairly well. Uh, Chad Scruggs had preached three weeks ago. Chad Scruggs, who lost his daughter, preached a sermon entitled, Death's conqueror. Now, without the resurrection, what possible hope would he have on a morning like this morning? What possible hope do you have for anything in this world without a belief in the resurrection? Number two, the resurrection reconstructs our minds. Look at verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and prophets in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He opened their minds. So use your minds with me just for a second here. Our minds will constantly believe that this couldn't have happened. You know, one of the theories about the resurrection is that it was just a massive hallucination, that all the people were hallucinating. And some people have said to me over the years, Andy, you can't prove it. In other words, they want me to prove the resurrection as if you could prove it in a laboratory. There's a different set of verification methods for like laboratory, you can prove barometric pressure. But historical verification cannot be proven in the laboratory. Historical verification comes through what? Witnesses. When I die, you would have a hard time proving in a laboratory that I ever existed. You couldn't do it. 
But you could interview my kids, and you could interview my wife, and you could look up pictures, and you could see if they could verify together, oh, yes, we saw him there, we saw him here. Yes, he always told that story. Yes, that was always a bad joke that he told. Yes, we can all verify all of these things together. That's why in the scriptures, in Mark, he says, if you don't believe me, go talk to Mary Magdalene. Go talk to Mary, the mother of James. Go talk to Salome. They, they've been there. They've seen them. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, there's 500 people. This was not done in a corner. He's gone and he's talked to all of these people. This is historically verified. And that's why we can believe it. And again, reason with me. If it's not true, then you have to provide... If you don't believe the resurrection happened, you have to provide an alternate, plausible explanation for how 12 Jewish boys all the way over in Israel would start a worldwide movement that would include presidents and poor people, that would include billionaires and disenfranchised, that would include black and white, that would include people of every caste system and every race and every color, economically diverse, socially diverse. The only Christianity has been able to do that. What would, the, what would the possible explanation be for that? That everybody for generations has hallucinated over this or that is actually true. But we're so scared to think about it because what if this is true? Well, he talks to their minds. He says, look, everything that was written about me from the law of Moses, from the prophets, from the Psalms, they're all fulfilled in me. In other words, this is God's, we've just saying this, this is God's plan unfolding so that you could have a relationship with God. And he goes through the law of Moses. I'm the prophet you've always wanted. And he goes through the Psalms and he goes through the prophets. I'm the king you've always wanted. I'm the priest that you've always wanted. I am the one, this has been God's plan all along for me to die for your sins so that you could know me, for me to conquer death, hell, and the grave forever so that you could have grace. You know what everybody in this room needs? Grace. Because we're all beat down and we're all weary. And this world's hard. And we feel like we're not good enough. And the resurrection gives you grace and it lets you know that one day it's all going to be okay. Robert Capon says it this way. He says, the gospel of grace must not be turned into a bait and switch offer. It's not one of those airline super savers in which you need a read of a $59 fare. I think this will be on the screen here in a second. I'll read it slow to Orlando, only to find when you try to buy a ticket that the six seats per flight at a price are all taken at the triple cost, $199.95. He picked perfect numbers for this. Jesus must not be read as having baited us with the grace only to clobber us in the end with the law. For as the death and resurrection of Jesus were accomplished once and for all, so the grace that reigns by those mysteries reigns eternally, even in the thick of judgment. God gives us grace. He's accomplished it all. He has fulfilled it all. And last, the resurrection will reconstruct our souls. Verse 46, and he said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. 
And basically, Jesus is there before him saying, I told you this was going to happen. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, and your witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of the Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Now, why would he say, first of all, he starts with his body. He says, look, see my hands, see my feet, uh, touch me, give me something to eat. See my ribs? You, you, you can see everything about me. The, the resurrection has changed my body. Then he moves to their minds. Uh, let me open up all the scriptures. And then he moves to their souls. And you might say, Andy, I don't see souls in here anywhere. Oh, it is, verse 47, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins. See, sin is not just something that you do with your bodies. It is that. It's not just something that you do with your minds. It is that. But sin's inside us. It's rooted in our souls. And so what Jesus says at the end is this resurrection also reconstructs your soul. And we often don't think about our souls, which is why Jesus said in Matthew and Mark chapter 8, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? In other words, what, what does it matter if you have everything at your fingertips? You've accomplished, you've worked hard, you've built companies, you've sold companies, you inherited a fortune, you've got it all. You worked for everything that you have in life, but you forfeited your soul. You're gonna die just like the rest of them. And so here Jesus says, look, I've done the, the one thing that you couldn't do for yourself. I've given you forgiveness from your sins. And the Christian hope is that we are eternal souls. That's why C.S. Lewis, an Oxford scholar, uh, in World War II, was asked by an interviewer, what would you do if you looked up and you saw a German bomb raining down on you? What would you do at that very moment? You know what Lewis said? Lewis said, I'd stick out my tongue at it, and I'd say, you're just a silly bomb, and I'm an eternal soul. What could possibly happen to me? I'm eternal. I'm made for God. I'm made for this moment where I get to meet him. So here's what I want to do. I want to talk to three people. Chris and Bob. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Wouldn't that be awful if I just like called three of you to the front? <laughs> I know your stories. You haven't been paying attention. You in the blue, come stand right here. Uh, I want to talk to atheists, agnostics, and Christians. These are not clean categories. You might not fit perfectly in one. But first of all, uh, let me talk to the atheist. The, maybe one who says, I don't believe God exists. I don't believe this. I think this is all a myth. I think everybody's making it up. I don't think any of it can be proven. I think y'all are all full of it. I'm here because my mom made me come. Or I'm here because my wife made me come. Or I'm here because, uh, you know, it's what we do in the South. Whatever. Uh, verse 47 I want you to see that, first of all, it's proclaimed to you. Napoleon said on his deathbed, I die before my time, and my body will be given back to the earth to become the food of worms. Such is a fate which soon awaits the great Napoleon. What an abyss between my wretchedness and Christ's eternal kingdom. It's proclaimed, loved, adored, and spreading through the world. In other words, here's Napoleon who conquered most of the world, saying, I, I did it all and I'm gonna die. What a massive difference between me and what's happening with the kingdom of God. 
Napoleon would go on and write on the island of Elba, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is not a man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and the gods of other religions. That resemblance does not exist. Everything in him astonishes me. His spirit overawes me. His will confounds me. Between him and whoever else in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. He truly is a being by himself. And if you're struggling to know or to believe that there is a God who exists, all you have to do is look at the truth claims of Christ and see that Christ is worth following way more than following yourself. And if you're an atheist, I, I want to teach you a word. Hiraeth. Uh, I doubt anybody knows that word. H-I-R-A-E-T-H. Hiraeth. It's Welsh. It's hard to translate. Uh, it's much like the German word senschacht. Some, some words in other languages, you, just, you can't find it in English. But you know what hiraeth means? It means a longing for a home that you knew existed but can't find. Best way to translate it. Because there's something in your heart that makes you think, in the dark nights, there's got to be more to this. There's something in your heart that makes you think, could I ever be fully loved? There's something in your heart that's always longing for a place called home where you'll be loved. Something in our hearts that always longs for Eden again. And that's God calling you back. That's God calling you home. That's God reminding you, friends, that there is a God who is worth following and who wants to bring you home. Now, let me speak to the agnostic. That's the person who says, I don't know. I'm maybe a Christian, maybe not. Most people in that category today, I find, are rejecting Christianity because they don't like Christians. And that's valid. I'm a pastor. I know a lot of Christians. I understand why you have a problem with that, right? But you see other Christians and you're saying, they're hypocrites. They're prideful. They're bigoted. They're blah, blah, blah. But imagine that you fall in love with the girl of your dreams or the boy of your dreams. I mean, the list you made when you were 13. I think girls do that more than guys, maybe, but uh, the list you made, what's your ideal mate? They check every single box, and you are madly in love with her. And she comes from a big family, nine kids, and uh, you go to meet uh, her family, and two of the siblings you really love, three you're okay with, four you absolutely hate. And you say, oh, how could you possibly be from the same gene pool? Some of you don't have to imagine that scenario. <laughs> but when you imagine that, you would never break up with the love of your life because you don't like some of her siblings. You wouldn't understand it, you wouldn't reason with it, you still struggle with it, but you'd never give up the love of your life. You would simply say, I just don't want to hang out with them at Christmas or at Easter, but I love you so much, I don't possibly understand how y'all can be from the same gene pool. Friends, don't give up the love of your life because you're annoyed by some other believers. Don't miss the opportunity to spend your life getting to know the one person who will never leave you or forsake you, who wants to take you on an adventure of this life and love you into the kingdom and restore you and make all things known. Don't give up on Christ, but instead follow him. And for believers, first you see 
the proclamation for atheists, the promise, my Father, for the agnostic, and then power from on high for believers. Here's all I want to say. I want to read the words from John Bennett and see this in your head. Look there, the Christ, our brother, comes resplendent from the gallows tree. And what he brings in his hurt hands is life for you and me. Joy, joy, joy to the heart and all in this good day's dawning. You know, for believers, uh, the point of the resurrection is not to celebrate it today. The point of the resurrection is to celebrate it tomorrow. And the next day when the sun rises, to give yourself continually new morning mercies, to allow your heart to be stirred with the hope and the realities of the resurrection and the claims of Christianity, to be able to say day after day, all the way throughout the year, he is risen, and he is risen indeed, because the resurrection changes absolutely everything. Let me pray. Father, now we... Even though sometimes we have our doubts, even though sometimes we struggle,